ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. What I'd like to have right now... With a big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Hey, folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, you're listening to Where the Big Boys Play, and as ever, I'm here with Chad. Uh, how are you doing uh, this morning, Chad? Doing great. How are you, Parv? I'm good. Uh, I'm good. I've just had a bowl of porridge and a cup of tea. So, <laughs> um, so t- today we're going to be looking at Clash of the Champions uh, six. Um, but as ever with our Clash shows, we're going to start by doing a roundup of the uh, of the wrestling observers. Um, so I've got a bit of news here from the March sixth, eighty nine Observer, which is that we now know that the special. Uh, that the NWA will put out against WrestleMania 5 on the 2nd of April is Clash of the Champions 6. Um, the man they hired to replace Tony Schiavone was in fact Lance Russell, which I, I must admit I didn't know. Um, he will host worldwide. And get this, Chad. He's been the host of Memphis Wrestling, apart from a 13-week period in the 70s, since 1959. Did yeah, you? I mean, he. I, I didn't know it was from the 50s. I knew it was from for a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, pretty much a staple of the area. And what well, Melter says, for a long period of that run, it was actually the best rated wrestling show anywhere in the world in terms of audience figures and so uh, in terms of TV. So I, I didn't, I always knew Memphis had strong TV. I didn't know it was that strong. Um, I, well, I mean, I wonder if that's, I mean, I don't know if he's judging that just based on, like, a per capita basis. Yeah. It, it, what like, is you know what I mean? I mean, something certainly like, in Memphis, a higher percentage, uh, like, as far as the share just in Memphis was higher than probably in any other city. Well, the, sh- the share goes up into the 70s, 70%, like the high, and easily the highest rated TV show anywhere in Memphis. For yeah. a period, so that's uh, that's that was interesting to me. Um, I mean, obviously, in terms of uh, audience figures, I I know, for example, World of Sport used to get upwards of ten million some weeks, you know. So, yeah, uh, I can't see Memphis wrestling getting that. How many people are in Memphis? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I would think that's probably just like a share basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Meltzer is very critical of the NWA's choice of new talent around this time, and he says it's been atrocious. They desperately need young, fresh faces. Um, and he's talking specifically about the signing of the Iron Sheik, um, which is an example <laughs> of meaningless depth, Chad. <laughs> uh, something that uh, I've been spending the last week talking about. Um, do big names uh, buried in the midcard mean anything? Um, well, Melt is saying that Iron Sheik is basically done by this point, and he's a pointless signing. He's not going to do anything um, for them. And he says the booking team of uh, George Scott, Gene Anderson, Joey Hamilton, uh, who is uh, the uh, the master assassin, right? Right. Um, yep. Assassin number one. 
Paul Jones, uh, so that's the booking team at this point, um, they said they're from an older generation and um, that xenophobic and ethnocentric angles, um, which is what they're going for, bringing in JYD and Iron Sheik, obviously, aren't going to work uh, with the modern audience who um, aren't just blue-collar workers anymore, but doctors, lawyers, grocery clerks, NFL footballers, and everyone else you can care to think of. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Do, do you think that's true? That it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just your typical wrestling audience watching this. It was everybody. Um, I mean, I I think that's kind of a little unfair. That I would certainly think some of those people during the rock and wrestling era were still watching as well. Mm. Uh, they just fell out. You know what I mean? Like I know during the Attitude Era. Pretty much everybody was watching, no matter what your prof. You know, a lot of people were watching, no matter what your profession or whatever was. So, I, I, I mean, I think it depends. I, I've always argued that it does. I mean, I think it just depends on the type of act you have. Yeah, there is also quite a strong assumption there that uh, blue collar workers at this time would have been xenophobic in some way. I'm not saying he's wrong, but you know. Um, well, I, I guess you would know better than, than, than me, uh, the general attitudes of people in, well, how old were you in 1989, Chad? Two? <laughs> yeah, two and three, so I would not have much of a, uh, pulse on the conscious of, uh, most of mainstream America at that time. He, he said that, um, uh, there's another new signing, Dan Spivey. Uh, who he says isn't a young up-and-comer. He's obviously been around for a while. And uh, he says he's got limited potential to be a star. But he does have some potential because he's, you know, a big guy who can move. Um, March 13th, Meltzer doesn't uh, think that the lineup for Clash 6 will make uh, people want to miss WrestleMania. Uh, it doesn't really have much else in that one. March 20th, uh, 89, Paul Bosch died. Uh, and he gets a nice obituary here, including a signed telegram from George Bush Sr., uh, who was obviously the president at the time, which I guess should go to show you what a, a major deal Paul Bosch was in that Houston area there. Meltzer actually refuses to believe that uh, Luthers, Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor, Dory Funk Jr., Gene Kanitsky, and Harley Race will all uh, show up to the Clash uh, 6 show, but they all did, didn't they? <laughs> Uh, pretty much all of them were there, that I could see. Um, the only person who refused to show was Jack Briscoe. Um, they, he does say then that the late 50s NWA champ, champ Dick Hutton, uh, have you heard of him at all, Dick Hutton? I mean, I've heard of him, but I'm not very familiar. Well, nobody knew where he was at this time, so uh, he wasn't going to be in attendance because his whereabouts were unknown. <laughs> and then I've got here... And you can tell me what you think of these, because uh, I thought they were some of them were quite entertaining. The new rules laid down by George Scott and Jim Hurd at this point. <laughs> are you ready for this? Okay. So th these are the new locker room rules. One, all workers present uh, one hour before the card starts. <clears throat> so I, I guess that's to stop uh, situations like the Dennis Condry no-show affecting them too badly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I have no problem with that. Two, uh, the mixing of faces and heels in public is now strictly prohibited. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an old standard that gets utilized some. I know Bill Watts is a big proponent of that. I, I mean, I don't know kind of how much I feel about that. Uh, I, I'm kind of mixed emotions on that. Everybody, by this point, should have known, you know, what the deal was. Yeah. But I still don't think it's too much to ask that if you're a big baby face and you're a big heel that y'all can, I mean, you can socialize with each other back in the locker room, you know? I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't think it's that much to ask that when you're out in public, you're not going to eat together or stuff like that. Third, no profanity on the mic at house shows or on TV. And that includes uh, even mild profanities like the word ass, for example. Okay. Uh, four. No use of the house mic before intermission. I didn't quite understand that. But, uh, there's quite a lot of this mention in this interview. That, that one seems a little, uh, <laughs> like a little kind of anal type of uh, rule to have. That one seems right. pretty ridiculous. Now get this one. I bet Ric Flair was uh, not happy about this. No low blows. Oh. <laughs> half his... Uh, half his arsenal as he got <laughs> later on into his career. Six. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I saw several guys break this rule on Clash 6. No using chairs, tables, or the railings. Oh yeah, that got... <laughs> <laughs> that got completely disregarded. No fighting outside the ring before the intermission. Again, I don't know what this intermission is that he's talking about here. Um, but that is a rule. So both guys can't go outside the ring before the intermission, whatever that is. Um, eight, no touching refs. That, uh, um, I don't know, we, well, I guess we did see a little bit of that. I, there were several times where he went face-to-face -to -face with uh, uh, Tommy Young in that match, and he didn't lay his hands on him. I yeah, remember. Yeah, Flair Steamboat, they did a good job of that. That was something I want to talk about. Wrestlers must, wrestlers must wear a collared shirt to and from the venue. <laughs> um, so, like, I, I'm getting a picture of, like, George Scott as kind of like a headmaster. He sees himself as, like, in charge of a school or something where he uh, he's laying down these strict laws. Uh, I'm just imagining some of the guys on the roster there being forced to wear a collared shirt. <laughs> um, ten. No spitting at any time on TV or on house shows. And uh, Meltzer just written in bracket here, this is half of what the Iron Sheet can do. <laughs> uh, no pulling down tights. Um, at all. And he's got in brackets here, that is half of what Dick Murdoch can do in the when he's outside of Japan. So, did he have a big thing about pulling down tights? Uh, Twelve. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be something that's going to be devastating to Ricky Steamboat. Wives, girlfriends, children and pets aren't allowed backstage. I, yeah, I guess I don't... Uh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Who's bringing their pet? <laughs> Rick Steiner. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, imagine that rule was uh, applied. British Bulldogs <laughs> and Jake the Snake. There, yeah. there you go. Co They'd be out of it. Coco beware. 
I mean, Kobe Ware, that is amazing when you think about it, how many pets are running backstage at <laughs> WWE. I mean, especially when you know, like, I, I'd listen to uh, Jake Roberts' podcast with Cole Cabana when he was talking about, like, how many snakes he went through. Yeah. He said he had, like, a hundred snakes <laughs> that he used as Damien, which was kind of sad, but uh, the four snakes, but... Uh, no, I, I had guys used to like if they ever wanted to get even on him, they'd like you know leave the snake in the boot and he'd get frozen and things like that. Yeah, I mean he he said that like he forgot them, they like fell off, uh, they essentially committed suicide. It was, I mean, it was one of those things where as he was telling it, it was kind of sad and humorous at one time. Yeah, and I did notice there George Scott booking for WF in '84. As soon as he leaves, you get this big influx of uh, wrestlers with pets. So, um, clearly they weren't enforcing it after he'd gone. 13, and this is the last rule, no long-distance telephones from the Atlanta office by wrestlers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, there we are. Where did Meltzer get a hold of this stuff? Like, <laughs> I wonder who's slipping him these rules, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe Flair. I don't know. Um, he's got a new signing uh, they've got a new signing there in the NWA the Great Muta Um, and it quickly becomes quite obvious to me that Meltzer hasn't seen much of Muta before this point because he very quickly goes from calling him um, the Great Muta to the motherfucking Great Muta (laughs) so he's very impressed with with him around this time Um, Brian Pillman is to start in April it's been a long time coming hasn't it he's I remember him mentioning Pillman back in November. <laughs> and get this, uh, Chad, this is big news. Randy Rose and Jack Victory are set to have a feud. <laughs> uh, March 27th, since Michael Hayes... So, what, so Rose was back? <laughs> Ra- Randy, Randy Rose was back. As a very low-card face. <laughs> um, play, play up the stipulation. Uh, March the 27th, uh, since Michael Hayes is doing colour commentary now, uh, Magnum TA won't be around much at all. And he's just said that it's a cold business. Um, it's kind of a shame, Magnum TA is, you know, not bad. Um, but Michael Hayes was pretty good on this show as well, as we'll, as we'll discuss. Um, the Midnights and Jim Cornette are quitting the NWA after some, uh, contract wranglings. Um, Cornette was really annoyed that Co- George Scott had cut their TV time, uh, and he drastically cut down uh, Corny's mic time, um, including not letting him go on commentary during their matches on TV, which is something he'd done for a long time. So bad times there. The Midnight's are on the way out. Um, and uh, also, JYD, oh, junk food dog as he calls him, has been fired for missing eight shows in a row <laughs> of bookings. <laughs> what is the date on this? Um, so this is the April the 3rd, uh, and he does go on to explain that um, they let him come to the Clash 6 show because they thought he'd draw some more fans in New Orleans, um, but literally that was the last date that he's going to work because, um, you know, he'd missed eight shows in a row with no explanation. So they decided to give him the win on the way out, obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah, much more JYD talk to come. 
You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, beginning all those places, and my telephone left the room. Also, Buddy Landell is due in soon. Um, and on April the 10th, I'll, I'll mention this now, uh, so we know, so we can put some context around the show. George Scott quit as Booker. Some speculation that he was fired, but it looks like he quit because he felt that the NWA was going nowhere. Um, Classics was the last show that he'd part, that he'd book basically, um, and they and the night before the event. They had sold less than 900 tickets. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm reading that right now. That is insane. And, I mean, the, the total gate was something like 4,000 people. And they were in a big, you know, where, where were they? They were in the, uh, the Super... They're in the Superdome. They were in the Superdome. I, I don't know. I kind of want to... I would like to have seen what the setup was for this. Because, I mean, the New Orleans Superdome is... A seventy thousand plus seat arena. Um, I mean, that's where WrestleMania Thirty is rumored to be. Yeah. For a little context, so I mean, them. I don't know if they had like half of it curtained off. I mean, I would. I mean, for as little people as was there, I would assume uh, that everybody was on with the, everybody that attended this show would have just been. Uh, in what would be the football field area of the uh, Superdome. Like, yeah. nobody would have been in the actual physical bleachers. Well, it did occur to me that it looked a little bit empty, but, I mean, Jesus, there were 4,000 people in this massive stadium. It's yeah, like, they, kept it, they kept it really dark. I mean, even, uh, even if they had it halved off, like curtained off half of it, I know that's what, uh, like, TNA is running the Alamo Dome for their lockdown pay-per-view, uh, which is another, you know, 70,000-plus arena. So it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what TNA kind of does with that, how they kind of section it all so it doesn't look completely ridiculous to have, I mean, even 10,000 people, which is a big crowd for TNA standards in a 70,000 arena mm. or <clears throat> or even if they cut it in half, that looks bad. And they don't have the luxury that uh, NWA did here where you could still have it be really dark in the building. You know, now for a pay-per-view setup, it's got to be, you know, lights. And you don't have as many shortcuts you could take. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I have to say, this is probably a travesty, right, that this show... <laughs> with this match on it, um, after the build that it had and everything else, I mean, this has got to be the biggest marketing fuck up in wrestling history, isn't it? Nine hundred yeah, tickets. I, I mean, <laughs> I have no idea why it was booked into this arena. I mean, why not just? Uh, I mean, even the Omni. Yeah, but I mean, be at a, a a week later. So even even if uh, even if they were at the Omni, right? Nine hundred tickets. That's, that's oh yeah, that's, I, I mean, mean even if they were only able to get, uh, I mean, he estimates the crowd at forty-two hundred. I saw on Wikipedia yesterday, there's research that said five thousand. Either way, that's about half. Uh, you know, that's less than half of the capacity at most arenas. So somebody wasn't doing their job very well. I don't know if I'd blame. Um, George Scott, but somebody in the marketing department there. I mean, 
people should have been if that had been advertised properly I refuse to believe there weren't more than 900 wrestling fans who'd want to see Steamboat Flair in 1989 right. when they had they had national TV they were on TV three times a week I mean it doesn't make any sense to me at all um, and uh, basically the booking committee of uh, uh, Eddie Gilbert Kevin Sullivan, Jim Ross, Ric Flair, Jim Hurd, and Jim Bonnet will take over now. Um, there's some rumour that Bill Watts uh, is going to be a possible replacement for George Scott, but we all know that didn't happen. Um, so that is the uh, that is the main uh, roundup on the, the wrestling observers there. Um, the, <laughs> the only other little point of interest, uh, Chad, and I'm going to talk about this a small bit before we get into the card, is that. Uh, with no real rhyme or reason, uh, in the March twenty uh, seventh uh, newsletter, he posts his top hundred uh, wrestlers for nineteen eighty nine. There, have you, have you had a look at that? <laughs> uh, yeah, let me look at this because I do know there was some uh, just glancing. We had uh, Marty Jannetty over Jumbo, yep. Saruta. So there's a uh, but have a look. The, the thing that really struck me there. 49, Stan Hansen. 48, Samu. 47, Big Bossman. <laughs> 45, Brad Armstrong. 44, Pirata Morgan. 42, Road Warrior Walk. Hulk. So, I, I don't really know what this... Like, what's, what's, what's he measuring here? I don't know what the... Because it can't be push pushes or anything, otherwise Hogan would be top. Yeah, we got Stein, Rick Steiner at 25 and Jumbo Saruta at 29. That is just <laughs> an egregious. So I'll just read the top 10 here. One, Ric Flair. Two, Barry Windham. Three, Ricky Steamboat. Four is Ten Ryu. Five is Ted DiBiase. Six is Takada. Seven is Arn Anderson. Eight is Kawada. Nine is Bobby Eaton. 10 is Yamada, 11 Fujinami, 12 Blanchard, 13 Eddie Gilbert, 14 Shawn Michaels, 15 uh, Hase. So I don't like this is the, one of the most random things I've ever seen this list. I don't understand it. <laughs> I would say this is a high, uh, um, I mean, Kawada to me is high there um, by what we saw. In the uh, 80s, all Japan set. I don't yeah. think he uh, had really came into his own yet with Footloose when Meltzer released this list. Uh, let me. Just, I mean, other, otherwise, it's it's like the top ten's not terrible. But there were things like I still like. Why is Randy Savage at 30? Below, yeah. below okay, Rick I Steiner. May, I mean, this may be the type of thing, and and I mean, and people honestly rank this and. When I go through rankings, I'll say I do this too. Like, if I'm ranking a match list from, uh, I, I mean, for instance, like the the 1990 yearbook, I rank all the matches I watch. And I know I'm on, uh, you know, basically write a post about my top 100 matches. Mm -hmm. So my top 100 matches, I give a good amount of thought to, especially like the top 25. Yeah. Um, but e but even up to the top 100. But you know, if you looked at my uh, list after that, right now I'm I'm through mid October and we're at I think 210 matches. 
So that kind of grouping from 140 through 180 that I knew would not make my top 100, uh, I probably liked the match. But, uh, you know, there's not a yeah. lot of thought given to where, you know, if you just asked me cold, I might, you know, if you asked, told me which two matches do you like, I, I might pick the one I have ranked at 180 over the one I have ranked at 140 yeah. without looking at it. Uh, so maybe this is the type of deal where he really concentrates on the top end, mm. and then after that just sort of throws uh, throws names up against the wall. But, I mean, Jumbo, to me, would have to be number two, or, yeah. you know, at least top five. That's that, that's a really strange one, to see him down there at 29, um, especially given that I've seen a decent chunk of 89, and uh, and 88 as well. I mean, what? Um, I don't really know what he's thinking there. And like some of the guys he ranks above him, uh, he's got um, Fuyuki there at 28, uh, Master Sato 26, Blue Blazer 21. I mean, he really loves Owen Hart, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think with some of these you can see, I mean, Tiger Mask at 19, it's, it's more of a kind of an up-and-coming type wrestlers some get ranked because at this point in time you know Shawn Michaels, Kawada uh, you know Yamada was just coming into his own as Jushin Liger um, and then on down the list you see a lot of kind of up and comers that he's ranked ahead of uh, Jumbo yeah so Chris Benoit he's got Chris Benoit as number 23 it's gotta, <laughs> gotta be quite surprising um Okay, well, uh, I'll uh, leave people to take a look at that in their own time, but it just struck me as a curiosity, because I couldn't work out, like, clearly he c it can't be rankings for what's happened so far in 89, because, oh. the, the, like, I, I can't see any argument for putting uh, DBRC5, for example, knowing what he was up to at that point. Here's an even, oh man, I'm looking at the bottom of the list, 85 Shinya Hashimoto, that's, that's insane, his 89 was really good. Uh, 89, our boy Al Perez, and then uh, <laughs> this will make Will real happy. 93, Jerry Lawler, right at the very end. Yeah, and I noticed Ricky Morton there is there at uh, 91 as well. Yeah, wow. very low. <laughs> Paul Diamond, isn't that the guy from uh, the Orient Express? Yes, <laughs> bad company. Yep. Okay, um, weird. So let's go on to Clash of the Champions 6 then. As we mentioned, we're at the New Orleans Superdome for this one. April the 2nd, 1989. Uh, hosts are Jim Ross and Michael Hayes. Now, um, as I mentioned, they'd invited all of the NWA champions here for uh, kind of a, like a gala dinner. I have to say, I've been to some nice restaurants in my time, uh, Chad. <laughs> the one that they picked for the former NWA champs did not look like a particularly swanky venue. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> Just looked like a bog-standard restaurant to me. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Harley Race was there, Dory Funk Jr. was there, uh, Buddy Rogers was there, looking really cool, uh, Terry Funk was there, Luthez was there, Gene Knitsky was there, Sam Muchnick, uh, who they were basically saying is the most important NWA promoter ever um, on the show, and Pat O'Connor uh, was there as well. And um, they got to have dinner with Ricky Steamboat, all of them, um, which seemed a little bit hard on Ric Flair, you know. 
you'd think that he'd invite uh, Slick Rick to dinner, being uh, the NWA champ for the past decade, but uh, he didn't seem to be in attendance. Did you see him there? I did not, so uh, I guess, uh, yeah, only the current champion was allowed. Um, Jim Jim Hurd is uh, here to make an announcement, and immediately uh, he's definitely got more charisma than Jim Crockett Jr. Only a little bit more, but would you say that's fair? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah he says uh, he basically wants to make a tribute to the former NWA champions, and that Ted Turner and he salute them for their accomplishments. And they, um, this was a real effort to kind of connect with the NWA's past and to say that, I mean, it, it was really humble message. He was, he was like, uh, I know that we're not on that level yet. We've got to earn it type thing, but we're trying, which seemed um, kind of very different tone from what we were getting a few months ago uh, under Dusty's reign. Um, so I'm guessing this was either George Scott's idea or his, because uh, very old school uh what did you, what do you think of this? I thought it was quite nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it kind of seemed like a uh, kind of mini type Hall of Fame dinner type uh, type deal. So yeah, imagine what they were talking about over that dinner. It'd be nice to <laughs> have a mic there or something and be able to fly on the wall. Yeah, these were. It was a lot of kind of fascinating. I mean, I, honestly, most uh, famous NWA champions from like the '60s on. So yeah. So. They, well, I mean, they they sometimes um, did, I don't know if they some do they ever get all the living presidents together? Like they they sometimes get all the living prime ministers together, and uh, like sometimes it happens when there's like six or seven of them. It must be really uh, interesting when that happens. Most of them are dead now, of course. But um, so as the show starts here, we get the American national anthem, um, and I get the impression that this show is being built up to be quite a big deal. Um, so, you know, this has got a much more of a big show atmosphere than Clashes 2 to 5, I would say, which are just kind of TV shows. Um, first match here is Jim uh, Jim, Cornette, uh, Jim Cornette is with the Midnight Express, and they're taking on the Samoan SWAT team, who are uh, Paulie Dangerous's new team. Um, after the he's lost the original Midnight's now. We get uh, Samu and uh, Lane to start. Uh, Samu gets the better of it and uh, tags Fatu in. Eaton comes in now and the Midnight's are back on top. Uh, we get some double teaming. Uh, Hayes is um, basically doing a heel colour commentator shtick. And I don't know if I... Uh, was this the first time we have a heel commentator? Like, to date? Um... Let me try to think. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, it was kind of, like, at first, it was a little bit uh, jarring, I guess. Like, yeah. Um, but I, I did kind of get into it as the as the show went on. Um, now, in his, in his uh, notes, in his reviews uh, of um, this show, he basically says that Michael Hayes did a better job than Jesse Ventura did at WrestleMania 5. I'm, I'm afraid I cannot agree with that. Um, I, I think WrestleMania 5 is one of Jesse's all-time great calls. But Michael Hayes was very good on this show. Isn't is WrestleMania 5 is where... Uh, yeah, that is where uh, they show the trailer for No Holds Barred and like yeah. Jesse loses his shit. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah I, but one thing I'll say about Hayes is he uh, he really kind of loosens up Ross. I think you he can does. see that from their, uh, I guess, from their Mid-South days when they were on commentary there together. It kind of had that same. Uh, so Ross had a lot of kind of, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but uh, there was a lot of kind of shots of women in the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Hayes would make comments <laughs> and would try to set Ross up. Well, and, uh, well, what I will say is that Hayes definitely has chemistry with uh, Ross, whereas, uh, well, as we'll get on to in 92, that's one partnership that doesn't work with Jesse. Um, as well, well, we'll talk about it <laughs> whenever we get to it, but I do think that Ross is very awkward when he has to uh, work with Ventura, but he, he wasn't awkward here at all. In fact, I felt that he... Um, at times tonight, because of that loosening up, almost kind of forgot where he was. Uh, it was like he was taken back to his because they were in New Orleans and he was thinking about Mid South so much. He was he really went back there quite a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, we had uh, some reminiscing, and uh, he even name dropped Mid South a few times. So, um, so uh, what happens is that Fatu accidentally hits Samu. Uh, in a spot that has actually been repeated twice at this by this point, and uh, Paulie, um, <laughs> um, kind of Samu falls uh, back, and uh, Paulie puts the phone to his ear uh, as if he's talking to someone. Who do you think he's talking to there? <laughs> Dennis Condry, maybe I don't know. Um, <laughs> Samu uh, regains control with a back suplex. Um, but Lane comes back with a drop kick. Uh, Eaton comes in with a headlock now, uh, and they pull the uh, gypsy switch behind the ref's back. Uh, we get an awesome right, uh, right punch from Bob Eaton around this time. One of the best punches uh, I think we've seen from anyone. Yeah. Um, and uh, the match has been basically all midnights so far. Um, and just as I say that, Samu gets on top, and uh, Eaton is our face in peril for a while. Um, we see a thrust kick from uh, Samu. Um, Fatu with the uh, mule. Uh, what does he get here? The nerve pinch. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> slowed the pace down. Now, I, I always thought the Samoan SWAT team were basically the head shrinkers, but uh, this is uh, this is Samu, right? He's not. He didn't go on to be in the head shrinkers, did he? He looked a lot I, lighter than he did. <laughs> yeah, I thought. I thought it was. It it it, it is. Samu and yeah. Fatu with the head, because Samu here yeah. looked like his, the tone of his skin color looked a lot lighter than it would do um, it, during the head shrinkers run. I couldn't. Yeah, it was the same. Uh, and I know for one hundred percent fact it's the same Fatu. I'm, I mean, I'm like ninety five percent sure it's the same Samu. Too. Yeah, I, I thought it was, maybe it was the light, like the way the lighting was on this show that everything was a bit overexposed. Uh, yeah, um, but he definitely looked like whiter than he usually does. Um, we get a uh, another kick to the face uh, from Samu, and uh, we get the hot tag to Lane. He comes in with his kicks and punches. Uh, we get the double noggin knocker, and the Samoans uh, <coughs> basically start beating on each other, um, which I thought was a silly little spot, really. Um, then we get I knew you'd have problems with that. <laughs> yeah, I just I didn't think it was very clever at all. I hate wild man yeah, bullshit. Sure. Um, I, I knew. <laughs> uh, poorly trips uh, Lane, uh, and then 
Cornette returns the feather and trips Fatu, which I thought was quite nice. Um, and really, I was expecting this to be into the finish. I don't know what you were thinking, but um, like, it's not the finish. We get quite a bit more of this match. Uh, there's a power slam by Fatu on Lane. Uh, he goes back to the nerve hold. Stan Lane is our face in peril now, and Samu misses a headbutt from the top. Uh, then we get another hot tag, Lane to Eaton this time. Uh, but he gets a double headbutt on him. Fatu misses from the top. We get a neck breaker by Eaton. Lane kicks Fatu. Then we get the rocket launcher by the Midnights. Um, there's stuff going on outside the ring. Fatu has the phone and lays Eaton out, and Samu covers for three. And I said, I've just written here, that's got to be a big upset. Uh, at this point, um, what did you think of this one, Chad? I, I like this a good bit. Um, I thought it was a, a fun opener. I mean, nothing, nothing extraordinary, but a, a real fun match. Went 20 minutes and went by uh, fast to me. Uh, they had a lot of this match had a lot of kind of tides turning. Um, hmm. It was a lot of little sort of short sequences. Uh, I mean, I think even the work, uh, the face and peril sequence on Bobby was only a, a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and really the nerve hold, I mean, the only two big uh, complaints I'd have with this match was the nerve hold, which mercifully they didn't have that applied very long. And then if if you have problems with the, uh, with the Samoans' head logic, yeah, uh, I mean that that definitely comes into play here. I've kind of just decided that that's just how it's going to be because it's like that in every match with them, where some stuff affects their head, some stuff doesn't, which is silly. But uh, but yeah, I, I again thought this was a lot of fun. Um, I would expect this to be on the upcoming uh, Midnight Express set. A good opener, energetic, and uh, yeah, just a just a Fun match. Three stars from Dave Meltzer. Would you go yeah. higher than that? I, oh, I think that's a pretty perfect rating for it. Um, my feeling was that Samu looked better than Fatu in this match. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, Samu looked good. Yeah, I, I thought. Uh, I mean, I thought he kind of had most of the workload. Yeah, he seemed to be in there uh, the most for the SST. Um, I, I mean, I thought all four guys looked pretty good though. I, I thought Eaton's punches were really good in this match. Uh, yeah, yeah. Eaton um, threw some great strikes. Um, Samu had some nice power moves. Hit a good belly to belly. So there, this uh, this had some really kind of fast sequences too, where there was a lot going on. It was really tough to kind of take notes where you had people kind of hammering each other, flying around all yeah. over the place. Uh, and they did good at sort of pacing those out throughout the match, too. So just, uh, again, as your mind started to wonder with, like, the nerve hold, hmm. they would then go in and do one of those kind of high-impact type sequences that pulled you right back into the match. I, I do think this match had a lot of gear changes and transitions yep. and things that which you weren't expecting. Um, yep. What I will say, though, it does have basically two things that I'm always been a bit funny about uh, it's got very very long shine sequence for the midnights uh i think maybe more than half the match goes on um where the midnights are basically well i mean it's all shine sequence right um and then we get two different face in peril sections what do you think about that as a as a as a structure 
for uh Oh, I, I love to uh face in peril. Mm. I've always uh been a big fan. If you if you can make it work where you do a shorter uh face in peril and then uh, later on can have like an extended face in peril, I'm all for that. Especially if they're different. Um, if they're a little bit different in what the heel team can do against yeah. each person, that's honestly one of my probably favorite things about tag team matches. Yeah, I think they did a really good job here of making me think that they were going into the finish when they didn't. Yeah, yeah uh, did that you... was a good tease. Um, okay, yeah, a decent opener. Um, and is that... Last we see the Midnights for a while. Are they going to be back next? Uh, next no, show? yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't kind of get what. Uh, I mean, they may take a little sabbatical, but they're obviously back by uh, Clash Nine. Yeah, I, I think the there was. Dudes. I think there was a little misunderstanding between Cornette and the George Scott management team around that time, from what I can understand, because there's already in the very next uh, Observer, there's already talk of bringing. Um, Cornette onto the booking committee, so um, I'm, I'm pretty sure something around that happened because I know he's. Right, but cl- they're they're at class seven, so right. I mean, okay, so so they're not yeah. gone for long. I, I didn't I didn't think they were, but I didn't I didn't know the class seven card right off the top of my head, but yeah, they're in that. Um, I don't remember them being at Wrestle War though. I'll look that up real quick. Um. Second match here is uh, our, our favourite, Stephen Casey. <laughs> this is the Great Muta, um, who we're told is the son of the Great Kabuki. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, and uh, we'd see a repeat of this uh, some years later where we get the son of Andre, of course. Um, <laughs> at the start of this match, uh, Muta meditates. That's, that's kind of, <laughs> real quick, that's sort of something that uh, you just could not do now. No, no. In in the internet age, you just there's no way you but, could have. Uh... <laughs> Chad, as this match started, okay, Butchers uh, meditates, and uh, did you see the big fat woman in the crowd just kind of looking at him blankly? <laughs> I did. I did not. Uh, <laughs> there's this woman in the crowd who's just staring at him, and I couldn't help but think what's going through her head, and then I couldn't help but think that that same woman at home would believe that this was the great Kabuki's son. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I did have to uh, <laughs> check my tape because he like stood still for. I mean, it felt like minutes, like twenty seconds. So I, th- I thought my tape had done froze out on me. I had to make sure that like the seconds counter was still going. Yeah. And he finally blew the mist. <laughs> so yeah, um, immediately he uh, blows the mist into uh, the face of uh, Casey. We get his uh, handspring elbow. Reverse chin lock from Muta. Casey gets an arm drag and starts uh, working Muta's arm. Uh, Muta uses a, a double mule kick, they call it, um, and hits a drop kick from the uh, top rope uh, onto Casey's head. Which looked and that good. looked crazy. Yeah. Because that was, uh, I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of tough to explain, but Casey was on top of his feet. He was on his feet, but his back was bended over. So he was facing, you know, the apron, yeah, uh, the mat, and yeah, Muda. I don't, I don't know if Casey knew Muda was coming, but he came flying off the top rope, he, right onto the back of his head. He, he could Casey took an awful bump. He could have legitimately killed him there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it looked really scary. Um, 
Muta with the chops and a wrist lock. Casey reverses it. And I've just written here that Casey loves arm work. Like, he is the arm work guy, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, Muta switches attention to Casey's leg with a spinning toe hold and a modified Indian death lock. We get a big kick to Casey's face, a nerve hold, uh, where we get some shades of uh, Kabuki. Um, Casey hits a clothesline but misses a drop kick. Uh, then we get the flying body press uh, over the top to the outside uh, from Muta, which is a spot that you see every single match pretty much on any WWE show these days. But, uh, you know, in 1989, you don't see that too often. Uh, then we get a backbreaker and a moonsault, which is enough for the three. And, uh, I mean, I'll just say that there weren't a lot of people doing the sort of thing that Muta was doing in 1989. And, uh, as, as I mentioned, uh, Melter calls him the fucking great Muta every time he every time he talks about him. Um, what do you think of this one, Chad? I mean, I mean, it was definitely I think a a good squash uh, showcase for Muta. Um, I mean, do you, do you see the star rating that Melter gave this? <laughs> he gave it three and a quarter. Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that, <laughs> but uh, but but it was. I mean, it was impressive. Uh, I think Muda had good atmosphere, kind of. Um, I mean, it's 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 sort of tough now because I think culturally we're a lot. You know, we've we've interacted with a lot of oil, other cultures and we're more knowledgeable than in 1989. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, so like you know, Muda kind of putting his fingers in his mouth and. Applying the nerve hold. I mean, it, it, he did have an atmosphere. He did have like a presence to him. So that's yeah. that's one thing I will say is he he did look you know he's mysterious and um I mean and his moves all looked really crisp here. Uh, and Casey took a pretty good beating, which is what his job was. So I enjoyed this for what it was, which was a squash match. I mean, this was a pure showcase for Muda, and Casey was alone for the ride. He did a pretty good job taking a beating. I, I'd say it's, off, it, it's a nice first look at him. And uh, Mucha is a guy, uh, I, I think as we'll see, especially in the, U, in the US, is incredibly hit and miss, right? As I, I think that... Well, even Japan. I mean, he is a guy who can... I would say as an overall worker, he is... Uh, he's just, I mean, maybe one of the most uh, inconsistent workers I know really in history. I mean, he's had... I watched a great match with him versus Hiroshi Hatsune, um, you know. But and then I've seen him face, uh, well, even just his his matches with Chono, mm. like the 1991 match with Chono is one of the all-time classics. And then a few months ago, I watched the uh, 1994 G1 Climax with Chono match, and it was uh, it was terrible. It was one of the worst matches I saw, uh, but. Uh, so he just even with common opponents, he was really hit or miss. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. He's a perplexing worker, but in this arena, I mean, in in the NWA North America, he's certainly somebody that uh, I I think he could. He's definitely an impact player. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the WrestleMania Five card, they did not have anybody on that card uh, like a great Muda. No. 
I mean, I guess the closest would be the Blue Blazer, but he got demolished by Mr. Perfect in five minutes, so. Yeah, not a bad little match, but yeah, um, you're, you're right. Uh, he, he's, he's a spectacle at this point, I think. Right, um, right. But it's still slightly like, I, I expect Meltzer to be a little more discerning, I guess. Uh, but he's obviously just marking out in a way here. Um, do, do you know what I mean? Like, he's just... His enthusiasm for Mookie well, is... Yeah, I mean, and, and, and we still see that. I mean, this is... It's just... A, that's just a cha- a difference in taste on what I... Uh, yeah. What wrestling he enjoys and what wrestling I enjoy. Because, I mean, just two weeks ago, he called the, you know, the New Japan January 4th show one of the best shows of all time. And <laughs> last year he called a match between Hiroshi Tanahashi and Minoru Suzuki better than any um, Mitsuhara, Masawa, and Kawada match, which was, I mean, you know, just, uh, I mean, I, I, I think of that as batshit crazy, but I guess everybody's entitled to their opinion. But I, I think this is certainly like when something new comes on the scene, it gets overhyped uh, by him. So, so our next, uh, our, before <laughs> we go from this, uh, <laughs> we go from this to a big New Orleans uh, brass band, <laughs> and JYD comes out uh, doing a bit of shucking and jiving. Um, <laughs> Hayes uh, has basically mentioned a number of times that he and Junk uh, Junkyard Dog, back in the day, uh, hold the attendance record for New Orleans, and he mentioned it. I'd say at least five times <laughs> coming yeah. coming into this, um, and I'm guessing that uh, they drew more than this show did. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, so <laughs> we've got basically uh, these guys are wearing some flamboyant clothes. Uh, they've got some sparkly parasols. They're doing some interesting dancing. There are some old guys. There are some young guys. I mean, what do you think of this little parade coming in? I like this commentary. I'm, the, I'm reading Meltzer's faults now, where he says it's uh, or the entrance, where he says it's a time-consuming, complete and total disaster. I thought this was, uh, I mean, it wasn't very long for starters. I mean, mm. it was maybe a minute longer than his regular entrance, and I thought it added a lot of kind of presentation to the show. I, I enjoyed it. I, I also think that, and this is something that um, I think Vince and WF have always been really bad for, is that they've got a habit of going places and really patronizing the home, the local market. Like, um, that you know, they'll go to Texas and they'll make a big deal of the fact they're in Texas and all the stereotypes come out, you know. About, that, that is true. That, and, yeah, they were in Texas. Vince is wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah, and ride horses and everything. Else. Whereas here, I thought this was quite a respectful little homage to New Orleans. Here, it's yep, not like they were looking authentic. down on the local crowd, right? Yep, yep. It seemed authentic. So, yep. Nice. Um, he's he's taking on Butch Reed, uh, who is with somebody who I thought had gone, Hiro Matsuda. <laughs> um, now he's not managing Flair at this point. Yeah, he's already off of Flair. Uh, apparently, he's picked up um, Michael Hayes as a new charge. Um, and, and, I mean, maybe on house shows, he was kind of uh, still came out there with Flair because I know Hayes mentioned that on that Omni show, he was going to be teaming with Flair. Yeah. 
So I don't know if Matsudo got rolled out there for that, but uh, it's possible. He he definitely looked like he was being less of a major deal on the show than in the last show. Um, now JYD is still pretty over with this crowd, um, and we get big right from him to start. We get the signature headbutts, kind of doggy crawl headbutts, which I know you love, <laughs> um, from JYD. And uh, I've just written here that he looked blown up already, and this match is 60 seconds so far. Um, which, considering what we'll, we'll go on to see, is quite laughable. Um, Reed comes back with some knees, uh, but JYD gets a hip lock um, and a body slam. I mean, I say he gets a hip lock. I don't know if he was going for an arm drag or, or what, but I don't know. Reed basically bounces off his hip. Um, Hayes uh, cheers Reed on. Uh, Reed goes to the eyes now with a series of rights. Uh, he chokes him on the second rope. Matsuda helps out. Um, we get three elbow drops and a chin lock. Uh, we get a back drop from JYD. Double clothesline spot. Uh, really, really clumsy looking double clothesline spot. Uh, both men are down. We get a snapmare from JYD. The laziest slap, snapmare I've ever seen. Um, and he misses a headbutt. Reed hits a flying shoulder tackle from the top. Uh, Matsuda's on the apron. JYD Irish whips uh, Reed into him. Falls back and that's enough for the 1-2-3. Chad. Um, and kind of, I mean, I, I'm not going to argue that this match was good, but I, I did think it was better and I thought it'd be going in. I will say, I thought it was kind of, uh, you know, for them being the third match on the card, it, it sort of, to me, felt like a kind of big match. Um, it felt yeah. like sort of re revisiting an old feud. Hmm. Uh, some of the shots were pretty stiff. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of perplexed because, I, like, again, I would never say it was good, but I, I was expecting something horrible. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think it was bad. I thought, I thought it was just decent, and the way they sort of set up the match, I thought was well done. Yeah, Meltzer obviously really does think it was horrible and gives it minus one yeah. star. You think that's too too harsh on this? Oh, extremely too harsh. Um, for me, I'd argue like two stars. <laughs> You'd go as high as two stars. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's a pretty big accomplishment. <laughs> I I think Butch Reed did as well as he as well as could be hoped. I think, but my feeling is that uh, JYD is just completely worthless by this point. Like, I mean, we don't talk about botches and timing much uh, in our reviews here but I mean some of these were so noticeable that I couldn't I couldn't overlook couldn't overlook them I mean that double clothesline spot he barely kind of um, gets his arm across there's a I mean I'm, I'm sure the finish wasn't what it was meant to be yeah that the finish <laughs> on the timing standpoint did look a little uh, uh, miscued but uh, so I mean, I'm somewhere in between. I think. I think I'd probably go one star uh, between between the, those two. But I, what I will say is that it wasn't boring or anything. It didn't make me roll my eyes. Or I thought it had felt like a okay kind of mid card match. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, I thought for like a mid card match. I mean, I think that may overcompensate a little bit for me uh, of the work mm. was that it did feel 
you know, kind of like a pretty big deal and felt yeah. like it was at its rightful place on the card. Yeah. And we, I mean, so. we've talked about, uh, you know, at least this is adding a little bit of meaning here. Although um, Meltzer seems to think that if it was 1983, fans would have cared a lot more about JYD here. But uh, no, oh, he, well, he, well, certainly. But, but uh, he, he did seem over still. Yeah, I mean, he seemed over with who was there. But, uh, um, uh, one one quick thing too. Uh, one thing that I wrote a note of is Ross during this match. He mentions how great an official Katie Long is. <laughs> <laughs> it was the official of this match, yeah. which, uh, knowing what I knew was to come, I thought was a great bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, very good. That, that was really nice. And I will say that Michael Hayes had, had a lot of um, little digs at JYD during this match, and like he was talking a lot about Reed's athletic ability, and then not saying anything about Junkyard Dog, which I thought was quite funny. He had, yeah, he had like a lot of little comments to. Uh, because obviously he'd feuded with him in the past, so I thought that was nice. Um, fourth match here, which looks quite tasty on paper, Dick Murdoch versus Bob Wharton Jr. with Gary Hart. Um, so were you excited going into this one? Yeah, I, I mean, this to me is a... Uh, I, I was pumped. I, and I didn't remember this match very much. I think, I mean, probably the last time I watched this show... Uh, uh, both both Murdoch and Orton are pretty fairly recent discoveries for me, as mm. far as I mean Orton especially. Like from my childhood, I just remembered Bob Orton when I watch old tapes as you know the guy with the cast that was pretty bad. Uh, so seeing him, you know how good of a worker he could be, has been a nice discovery for me. Now I will say going into this that Bob Orton looks a hell of a lot older than the last time we saw him. Uh, back in '83 or whenever it was, like he he's aged considerably in that five-year period, I would say. Yeah. Um, and Dick Murdoch's stomach is huge at this point. Um, and uh, well, that's because he drinks a six-pack every night, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think he, I think he even had his own bar at yeah. one point. And well, they they talk about uh, they talk about actual actual bars, local bars that uh, Hayes and Ross. Uh, on common, I can't remember where exactly they mentioned there, but um, they do mention that Murdoch uh, frequents this establishment. Um, anyway, as we start uh, off here, we get a fireman carry takeover by Orton, and again, um, Murdoch answers with one of his own. We get a wrist lock by Murdoch. Uh, Orton uh, kicks up and reverses it. I was kind of surprised to see Orton kick up there, because he, yeah. he, he doesn't look like he'd be able to do that. Uh, Dory Funk Jr. and Pat O'Connor are watching on. Murdoch cranks on the arm. Uh, Orton elbows him in the face and goes back to the arm. The crowd is quite quiet here. I couldn't help but notice. Um, Murdoch, uh, th that is until Murdoch starts kind of firing up. And uh, they're, you know, reasonably behind Murdoch in this match, I think. Who's the face here? Um, every former world champion is looking on. Uh, I don't know how much pressure that added. To, uh, do you think the guys felt the pressure of, like, you know, ten of the greatest wrestlers ever watching them doing this show? Do you think these two guys were thinking about it, or not really? Well, I think it's just according to what you're... I mean, I don't know... Uh, I mean, I've, as far as when I've been playing sports and stuff, I haven't... 
noticed who's in the crowd. I mean, I haven't done any uh, kind of performing art since middle school, so yeah. obviously then, I, I mean, I've never been nervous in front of a crowd, though, so, I, I mean, I would expect that most of the wrestlers, I mean, I mean, sometimes you can see that, but I would expect most of them are kind of oblivious to actually who's out there. Well, Orton stays on top for this next uh, bit, and we get a nasty-looking elbow from him. Uh, rights and lefts. Uh, Murdoch starts a comeback. There are a lot of spaghetti legs here um, from both guys. Kind of that slightly cartoony, uh, Terry Funk-style selling, I guess, at this, bit, at this point. We get a big right from Murdoch, and then again, front face lock, but Orton um, puts him on the top rope. Murdoch signals for a brain buster, and uh, he actually goes to put it on and goes up for it. But Gary Hart trips him uh, as he's going up, and Orton falls on top of him for one, two, three. And uh, I noticed that as he was counting, Hart holds down Dick's foot um, as the pin happens. So, what did you think of this one? Um, I, I like this match a good deal. Um, I thought it was kind of neat, and that the first half was uh, basically focused on an arm bar. Uh, Dick was in an arm bar for the first half of the match. But the way they worked it, I thought was pretty good. Uh, Ross was really good on commentary, showing you know how Orton kept a wide base. Uh, you could see kind of the joint of the elbow uh, being cranked out. Uh, so it did look painful, and then they had a couple of sequences where they had just a few uh, punches that either got out of holds or counters in the first half of the match, um, and they really made those strikes count. And uh, and then after the first half being just basic armbar work, uh, we go to the second half, which is essentially kind of a knock them, drag them out brawl. Uh, where they're just sort of punching, kicking, knee drops, uh, firing each other. I, I did like the staggered selling here a good bit uh, because the punches were coming and they kind of, it's a little cartoony, but it did look kind of like two, uh, two boxers that are both kind of out on their feet. Uh, the finish is a little cheap, but uh, it's kind of interesting that we get this finish in this match because it's uh, pretty identical to the Ultimate Warrior uh, Rick Rude finish it at is. WrestleMania 5. No, you're right. So so they actually kind of beat them to the punch probably by like 45 minutes in real time by doing <laughs> almost the same exact finish. Uh, but I, I like this match a lot. Uh, I would just, I, Watching it, I assume that you probably did not. So, well, so, I, I mean, I'll just tell you what Meltzer thinks before I tell you what I think. Um, he really didn't like this match. He says, this match was awful, but there was a reason. Apparently, they were supposed to go 16 minutes, so they started out slow. The first seven minutes were horrible, and all of a sudden, they got the signal to go home early and had to go right to the finish. Still, Murdoch looked bad. Half a star from uh, Dave Meltzer, which seems... Oh, that is... <laughs> so, uh, what's your reaction to that? I mean, that's a very low rating from him. I mean, I thought Murdoch's punches looked good. He was selling the arm good. I don't know what more you want. I I actually thought this was a good little match with some neat spots, and it was very smartly worked, I think. Um, I mean, the stuff on the art, like, don't get, I don't dislike arm work. 
uh, at all mat work. Okay, I just don't like it when I, it feels like there are two guys just laying on the mat. But I thought here they did a good job of making it seem like a real struggle, you know. Right. Uh, and as you mentioned, Ross on commentary kept on talking about the specifics of what each guy were doing. So it all made sense as a kind of chess game. I, I don't mind all of that stuff. I mean, I was high on uh, Billy Robinson versus uh, uh, Nick Bockwinkel you know, right. from all, all Japan. Um, it's just that uh, it, something interesting has got to be going on there. can't just be a guy laying in the headlock. So, um, yeah, I thought it was good for what it was. Um, although, I mean, I think given more time or a slightly different layout, I think these two guys could probably put on a lot better match than this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess we could talk uh, later on, but I don't, I mean, I guess I don't really know what on this card made it go so long. Mm. Uh, it'd have to be the the opener 20 minutes. I don't know if that was supposed to be 20 minutes or not, but everything, uh, especially after the next match, feels really rushed, of course, up to the main event, but the main yeah. event actually went on early and bumped two matches, so... Yeah, I, I did, there was some definite timing issues on this show, although I have a little theory, which I'll... Um, when we get to it, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll run by you, see what you think. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Varsity Club head to the ring now, um, and there are all, th- all three of them, Rotunda... Um, Sullivan and uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Sullivan's lost the TV title to Sting last night, uh, which is some quite big news. Um, you'd think, maybe, they might have put Sting uh, Rotunda on this show, possibly. Um, but then, they obviously, they had different plans for Rotunda, as we'll see. Um, Sullivan is wearing a very bright red sweater tonight. Which I wasn't explained, but looked pretty silly to me. <laughs> so they're taking on the Road Warriors for the world title, uh, the world tag titles. Um, Hawk and Rotunda start out. Rotunda misses a uh, elbow early doors. Uh, we, the Hawk then decimates him with a clothesline, which looks like it takes his head off. Um, Animal comes in and Gorilla slams both Rotunda and Williams. We get a long shine sequence here. Williams and Hawk go eye to eye. Uh, big clothesline from Doc. Rotunda comes in with a snap mare. Uh, Animal comes in and gets a double clothesline. It's all Road Warriors so far. Uh, goes outside and we get what Michael Hayes calls a bear hug slam by Williams and Animal outside there. Um, uh, which I guess is accurate. He gets him in a bear slam, uh, bear hug, and then he slams him. Um, we get a backbreaker by Rotunda. Clothesline by Doc. Then another bear hug from him. Animal is basically our face in peril here. Uh, and he gets a belly-to-belly suplex. Abdominal stretch by Rotunda. Uh, Animal comes back. Uh, we get a hope spot uh, from him. Then the three-point stance and a tackle by Williams. First of several. Um, he throws Animal outside where Sullivan and Rotunda use a chair, breaking uh, George Scott's rule. Uh, then he gets a nice-looking spine buster on him. I mean, it's not Arn Anderson standard, but it was a pretty good spine buster uh, by Williams, um, who's looking a lot better in 1989 than he did in 88. I'll just say that right now. Um, Animal um, is 
taken quite a beating here. Uh, I mean, for a Royal Warriors match, this is quite a long face and peril segment. Um, but as I say that, he hits a clothesline on Matunda. Um, but again, it's just a hope spot because he's slammed by Doc. But then Animal gets another clothesline and finally gets the hot tag. And then we get something of a hawk showcase of all of his signature spots. The scoop power slam, fist drop, military press, flying shoulder block, doomsday device. I mean, that's basically everything Hawk does in a 30 sec, like a kind of hot little stretch. <laughs> they go to cover, and Teddy Long, who's kind of hurt his back or something, is just standing there, not counting. Doc sneaks in and rolls up uh, Hawk behind, and holy corrupt referee Batman, uh, <laughs> Teddy Long runs but <laughs> as fast as he can and does the quickest three count you'll ever see, and we'll get new world champions here. And the Row Warriors are beside themselves. <laughs> um, Chad, what do you think of this? The, the Road Warriors get screwed uh, more than any team I can think of. Uh, as far as far as this match, this was a good. Uh, I mean, it was it was a pretty good kind of clobbering big man match. Uh, I think Doctor Dev looked good showcasing his moves. Uh, yeah. A lot of his moves, he did a lot of power moves, and they all looked effective on Animal. Uh, Animal actually sold pretty well. Rotunda kind of stayed out of the way, and then, like you said, we sort of got the greatest hits from Hawk right there at the end on the yeah. hot tag. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, th- I thought the match was pretty fair. Uh, the ending with Teddy Long, uh, you know, it's a screwy ending, but it does lead to actually something. Uh, you know, in some ways it leads to this now 24-year career of Teddy <laughs> Long as an on-air character. Uh, but but in the short term, it'll lead to him becoming a manager. Um, and he'll get a new charge team uh, that he leads. So so that, I mean, it's, it's kind of a spree way to... Uh, to, for the Road Warriors to lose the titles, but they're still protecting the Road Warriors, so I, I mean, I don't think you'd kind of expect them to lose clean as a sheet when they lost the belts. Now, now, do you know, according to Meltzer here, for the record, that is the first pinfall loss for the Road Warriors since the fall of 1985. Yeah, that is amazing. Where they lost to, um, <laughs> this seems even more amazing thinking about it, Jim Garvin and Steve Regal. And that's not <laughs> Lord Stephen Regal, but the uh, yeah. the the bad Steve Regal, Mister Excitement, uh, <laughs> as he or Mister Electricity, yeah. uh, who is about the most unexcitable uh, performer you'll ever see. He, it's kind of ironic that he, that's his name. He is right in there with Flat Top Nikita Koloff as being one of my least favorite workers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's a very long. Is that longer than Hogan went without being pinned, do you think? I wonder. I think it might be. Oh, well... No. I mean, I he wouldn't get pinned until WrestleMania 6. Oh, no, yeah. no, cause, no, 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 because Andre pinned him. Andre, yeah, the main of the main event or whatever. In, a, in another it, screwy referee finish. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, that's quite an impressive record. I wonder if that's the uh, longest, obviously... Fabulous uh, Moolah went, you know, 60 years without being pinned or something, but still. Um, I I think that might be, a, if you look through the record books, I wonder who went longer without taking a pinfall loss anywhere. Um, K, 
because I mean it's not just the TV and the big shows; it's all the house shows as well. You know, guys dressed like two, three hundred times a year in this period, so it's a hell of a lot of wins. <clears throat> um, anyways, Jim Ross is with the Row Warriors here, um, and they are pretty uh, pissed. Even Paul Ellering gets on the mic and cuts quite a coherent little promo, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I thought this was the best promo on these shows that we'd seen Paul cut. Yeah. Well, I liked it. No, he was good there. And uh, that's the first time I really thought he'd bring something else. He seemed like cerebral and dark, and you know, it was pretty good. <laughs> yep. Um, then we see a ranger with Old Glory, which I believe is the name of the US flag, right? Yep. Um, and he zip wires down to the ring. It's Ranger Ross. Who? <laughs> His opponent. I only know I missed the pearl. <laughs> Ranger Ross. I couldn't sound any lamer than <laughs> Ranger Ross. Um, and his opponent here with Rip Morgan, um, who still I don't really get his deal as if being in this New Zealander who US fans don't like, look like, um, is the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik here. Um, so we get Iron Sheik versus Rage, Ranger Ross. And uh, Iron Sheik is not in the best of shape here. I thought he was actually, his gut was running uh, JYD's gut close at this point. <clears throat> um, but he is still in better shape than JYD, I think. Um, he wants to sing the Iranian national anthem um, to start out with. Uh, I don't know if he ever used to do that, but he's been hanging around with uh, Nikolai Volkov too long. Uh, right. <laughs> And he attacks uh he attacks Ross uh, Ross straight from the get go while he's still wearing his um still wearing his ring gear. Um, <laughs> um and uh, Jim Ross says of uh Sheik singing, he's got a voice for silent movies, which I thought was a nice little uh, one liner. We got a gut wrench suplex by Sheik to start. Now whatever you say about uh Sheik, he does have one of the best in the business, I think. Um, he chokes uh, Ross with his shirt. He goes for a vertical suplex, but Ross reverses it. We get an abdominal stretch by Sheik. Um, Ross comes back with a kick uh, and covers. Then, out of nowhere, Rip Morgan attacks him with a flagpole for a DQ. Uh, we get heel beat down. JYD is here for the save. Any thoughts on this one? Wait a minute. We didn't get much stuff. She actually looked pretty good, I thought, doing the gut wrench, and yeah. he missed that scent on. Uh, terrible kick by Randy Rawls. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Uh, have you seen that match where he's the Pearl in 1990? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen it. Okay. It, is, is it on the yearbook? It is on your yearbook, buddy, so it's coming up. Uh, Ranger Ross. Bloody Ranger hell. Ross as the Pearl, which they <laughs> essentially had him in all. Uh, he's in this fully black um, clothes <laughs> outfit, um, even his hands and, uh, and a mask, so you, you have no idea who it is. Uh, they On commentary, they pretty much hint that it's the Great Muda under the mask, but it's obvious, by the way, uh, Ross is <laughs> moving that it's not the Great Muda. Uh, so we get this kind of five-minute herky-jerky um, 
kind of squash match, and he ends it with a terrible moonsault. It's really sad to behold. Uh, probably Ranger Ross's uh, highlight of his career. <laughs> who who thought this guy was a good idea? I mean, he's like... Honestly, I think they may have made bigger impact if they brought SD Jones in here. Like, I mean, Ranger Ross. Was he a big star anywhere? Was he... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't. We'll see. I guess they kind of have a little run here, though, where they have gimmicks like that. Because as we'll see, uh, in a couple of years, we'll have Firebreaker Chip and you know Chris Champion. Well, he, he seemed like the prototype for uh, Sergeant Craig Pittman here with his zip wire. Yeah, that action. too. Yeah, he was billed from Ackworth, Georgia, which is uh, <laughs> where I used to live. So I. I enjoyed that when they said that. <laughs> so you you were rooting for Ranger Ross. Uh, oh, so he he endeared he was endearing to me when I heard that. This was this was okay for what it was I thought, but um I went through a in the days before the uh micro before I was even part of uh, PWO, I uh, I went on a little kick and watched like every single. Uh, do you remember when Iron Sheik had his Colonel Mustafa run? Yep. Um, I, w- I basically went and watched every single match he had, and he was basically a jobber to the stars by that point. After the um, SummerSlam main event, he basically hangs around for like a year, doing various kind of three-minute jobs to guys who they were pushing at the t- time. And every single match he has is the same. Gut wrench suplex, go for a suplex, it's reversed, match ends. Um, so... <laughs> um, like I think that he could do a few things well at this point, but he didn't show a lot of ambition to do any more. Um, and I also noticed watching all of those kind of Colonel Mustafa matches is that um, Sheik does is not a guy who sells, who will sell for guy for peop- other people. Like right. he he no. always made it look like even against like Ultimate Warrior or Undertaker or people like that, he would like kick out just just after the three count type thing right. to make it look like he was still strong, you know. So, um, it, yeah. As we know about him, I, I think he's one of the people who doesn't quite understand that wrestling isn't real. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Like, he, uh, he always wants to look strong, you know. Yeah, he definitely way. wants to make himself, uh, portray himself as a, uh, Kind of a lot more important than he really was at this point in time. Yeah, and, and he's uh, announced as a former world champion, which is uh, yeah. yeah, he sort of overvalues his word. <laughs> so still does. <laughs> um, so, so we get Bob Coddle with uh, Ric Flair now, who tells a uh, steamer to be ready. Um, then we get uh, and that this this real quick that had to have been the pre-tape because uh. Flair's in a suit, and, yeah. um, as we'll see in this next match, it doesn't go but four minutes, So, and then immediately after, they come out. So. I actually thought that that promo with Coddle and Flair was like a throwback to like early 80s. Like, What was that spangly gold background? It was like Yeah, he had some kind of shimmering gold. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know where they hung that up at in the Superdome, but yeah. Yeah, it was, it was clearly a pre-tape, you're right. Um... So our seventh match on the card here, uh, the newest member of the Varsity Club, Dan Spivey. Yeah. Um, 
Now, I, I don't know about Kevin Sullivan's recruitment policies here. I don't know if Dan Spivey is at the elite level required to be in the varsity club, but clearly he thought so. Um, and they're going up against the U.S. tag champs at this point, Rick Steiner and Eddie Gilbert. I I don't remember those guys winning those titles. Uh, yeah, I blamed on that as well. Who 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 the was it the Fantastics? Uh, um, well now didn't Williams and them beat them at Starcade '88? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the Varsity Club had a run with the U.S. tag titles and somehow Gilbert and Steiner have won them since. Um, so we obviously got a title switch between... Here we go. Uh, Kevin Sullivan and Steve Williams did defeat uh, the Fantastics on December 26, 88 at Starcade. Um, on February 28, 1989, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner won it and uh, that aired March 18th. Right. So uh, they'd only been the champions for a couple of weeks. There with Missy Hyatt at this point. Uh, I think that's our first look at her. Yes. Um, much more Hyatt to come. <laughs> um, Tate had a nice comment about her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, and then I don't know if you caught this line, but I liked it. Uh, he called her abroad, and uh, <laughs> Ross said that wasn't very nice. And then Hayes said only his, uh, the only lady he knew was his mother, and the rest were abroad. <laughs> That made me laugh. It did make not, me laugh. Not exactly <laughs> a politically correct, but kind of funny nonetheless. Yeah, no, Hayes did a great job of getting over himself as a character throughout the show. I thought, as well as uh, as well as what he was watching, he was uh, he was very funny. Um, now, one thing going into this match is that I thought that um, it was a bit weird that Kevin Sullivan was like the leader of the. Um, the leader of the Boston Club, but he was happy to go after the U.S. titles here after they just won the tag titles. That does seem kind of strange. I don't even think of that. It makes him seem like a less of a. Do and they kept on calling uh, Jim Ross kept on calling Michael Tunder the captain of the Varsity Club. You notice that? Yeah, yeah. He ended up calling Sullivan the coach. Uh, yeah. So I guess Rotunda's the captain. Sullivan's the coach. <laughs> Um, Spivey's the water boy. I don't know. <laughs> so as things start out here, Spivey dominates Gilbert to start. Um, there's no shine at all for the uh, faces here, um, which it is not a start that we've seen too much of. Uh, you get a lot of a lot of it with Stan Hansen tends to. Can't remember what they call it now, when they basically just skip the, the shine sequence and go straight into a beatdown right to start off with. But we, we get it here. Um, we get a big slam by Spivey. Uh, the Varsity Club are doing a real job on Gilbert. Uh, here we get a flying clothesline by Spivey. Um, Gilbert uh, gets a tag um, to Steiner, who unloads on Spivey and hits a scoop power slam. Um, he gets a belly-to-belly -belly suplex. Uh, Sullivan breaks a count. Everyone goes outside now, uh, so obviously the intermission is gone. Uh, Hyatt nails uh, Sullivan with... Uh, her Gucci bag, and Gilbert rolls him up for the three count, um, which is quite a surprise early finish to this match for me. Um, Post-match, the heels unload on Gilbert, um, and Spivey power bombs him. Sullivan busts his eye open with a series of vicious-looking rights, uh, and Rick Steiner comes in and clears house with a chair. Um, yeah, any thoughts on this quite a short match? Yeah, it was it was a really abrupt. 
uh, Gilbert was bumping really well. Spivey looked really bulky mm. uh, here. Um, he, he definitely kind of uh, chiseled up the further along in his career. Uh, his, his power moves looked okay. I mean, I think Gilbert did a real good job selling off of them. Uh, yeah. And he, he looked, I mean, he really looked like he was taking a beating. We did get probably the dumbest uh, move of the night as Gilbert was kind of tied up in the tree of woe position on the ropes. And his, his uh, Sullivan was on the opposite side. And Gilbert's ropes, uh, his feet slipped. So he fell to the mat. And uh, there's about a two-second pause difference. And then Sullivan goes charging towards him, um, you know, like he was still in the tree of woe position and tries to hit a knee. It looked completely ridiculous because Gilbert had already fell. Um, there was also at the very end that tumble that Steiner and Spivey did to the outside looked nasty where they both landed awkwardly. So a little bit of slop was mixed in even in mm -hmm. four minutes. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was it was fine, but there's not really a whole lot to analyze. I mean, the main takeaway I got from this was that Spivey looked okay and uh, Gilbert bumped really well. I just written here that Spivey looked surprisingly good. Yeah. Um, because he's somebody I've never really liked much, but he looked decent here. Um, Sullivan was quite vicious, and I've just written great selling by Gilbert as the rag doll in this match and he looked like he took a real beating in this four minutes so um I enjoyed that. So it was it was alright for what it was. Uh Meltzer goes a star and three quarters. Fair. So big news now. Lex Luger versus Jack Victory has been cancelled. <laughs> so Luger was gonna defend his uh US title against the extraordinary worker Jack Victory. <laughs> That's so, uh, that so had me heartbroken. I actually would have been interested to see if Luger could have gotten, I mean, I guess that match did take place. I don't know if it ever aired. Um, well, I mean, I would assume it did because Ross was talking about it, but uh, I've never seen it. Well, so. what, what happened was is that it actually took place after Steamboat versus Flair, um, and the live coverage stopped, and they showed it the very next night on TV. So it does exist. It is out there. I don't know if... For a bit of homework, if you want to watch that in your own time. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but here's my theory, okay? My theory okay. is that this match was never going to take place. It was never going to happen on the main show. Um, they they made it... Uh, my feel is that it's, it's a work that... I mean, look at it. Look at that match on paper. Lex Luger versus Jack Victory. This, there's no way that that is being built as, an, as a credible pay-per-view... Not, not as, as a big card match at this point. Um, what do you think of my little theory? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I was, I was thinking that that like if, if it was, I mean, if it was planned, that would explain something. But if, if this was, uh, you know, if, if Steamboat and Flair kind of on the fly had to go out there, you know, if it, if it was kind of chaos backstage and they basically told them y'all are next, you know. Yeah. Uh, that that sort of makes what they're about to do, in some ways, even more extraordinary to me. That I mean, because it can be really jarring, uh, you know, even in the business world when you have. Uh, I mean, I know there's been times where I've had a meeting at a certain time and it gets bumped up, and you kind of 
uh, have to gather yourself a little bit. You're sort of thrown off balance. So if 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 that is what happened here, that's extraordinary with how well they adapted. Um, but but it may have not have been. I mean I mean I don't know. I think they may have done it as a showcase for Sting and Luger. Uh, but ten matches is a lot. I mean that'd have been ten matches on the card. Yeah. Well, the the, the Sting matches against Rip Morgan. I I just I just don't believe that um they were planning on ever having those matches actually air on this card. Um, because they're too, the opponents are too small. Like you'd um, you'd switch things up. You'd go Sting versus Butch Reed or something like that, or you'd put um, because I know leading into this, they thought it was going to be Iron Sheik versus Drunkyard Dog. It was only last minute that it was uh, made into being Butch Reed uh, mm-hmm. versus JYD. So I think that um, yeah, I've got a funny feeling that. They this was kind of planned chaos if you want, um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> um, Luger versus Victory aside, uh, Flair walks down the aisle now, um, and he's followed by a harem of women. Steamboat comes to the ring with his wife and kid in his karate gear, and I do hope they weren't in the locker room. Um, they they must have uh, just. Um, come from the crowd or something. They, they weren't yeah, allowed to be yeah, back Yeah, met there. him right at the entrance and then <laughs> ran out. Yeah. Um, the kid is wearing a dragon costume at this point. And uh, <clears throat> also Terry Funk joins us uh, for commentary during this match, which was nice. Um, so, Ricky Steamboat versus Ric Flair for the NWA World title, Clash of the Champions 6. This is... Uh, this is commonly referred to, I believe, as the greatest match. So let's, uh, Chad, my notes, I'm just letting you know now, <laughs> they go, um, four whole sides of A4, okay? So don't, don't be afraid to butt in whenever you want. Um, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I can, but, you know, this match is an hour long, so, um, we get a counter wrestling exchange to start, followed by a, big slap across Flair's face by Steamboat. Things get kind of tentative in the early going. Um, the steamer gets a headlock on. Chop suey now. Um, and then we get a flying head scissors by uh, Steamboat. Flair begs off around the um, around the 10 minute mark and Funk actually does quite a good job of talking about the psychology of why he's begging off and how it's buying him a little bit of time to get in some offense of his own, which is I thought was quite good because it. I talked about this before. I don't always think people understand what Flair begging off is about. I think they just think he's being a chicken shit, but I don't believe that. Yeah, as as well. I mean, this this is a match that I'll preference by saying uh, I, I watched this match closer than I'd ever watched this match this time. Mm. And there, there is layers upon layers of storylines yeah. in this match. Yeah, and, uh, and and this the first sequence with him kind of doing they they sort of did a, some kind of rinse and repeat spots where you'd have a headlock, uh, Flair would get up, uh, but but then he'd almost get counted out. That happened a couple, you know, two to three times, three times I think in the first fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Where it, it'd be a real close uh, count, and uh, Funk 
sold that all so well, and then Flair would beg off and was able to gain the advantage that way. Yeah, and I think later on we can talk about, I mean, I, I talked about it on the PWO board before, the four, my little theory about the four faces of Flair. I do think this is one match where we see them all. So um, I'm interested to talk to you more about that in a bit. All right. Um, we get uh, Steamboat works on Flair's neck, um, and Steamboat's chops are just huge, absolutely huge here. Uh, we get an inverted atomic drop from Flair, and a series of knee-off falls from a steamer now. Um, Flair brings the big chops himself now, but Steamboat comes back, and I t the chops are just absolutely fucking huge. There's no way. I mean, Steamboat's chops in this match are just insane. I mean, they're they're just massive. Um, yeah. There's a suplex by Steamboat. Uh, a splash is blocked by Flair's knees. He gets a snapmare on, and in a uh, something different, instead of going for the knee drop, which he has done in every other match that we've watched, uh, pretty much, he jumps on Steamboat's stomach with both feet instead. Yeah. Um, we get the butterfly suplex from Flair, series of knee falls from him now, um, and I've, I'm just going to—I've got a note here saying Terry Funk is just so great on commentary during this match. He just makes it um, th the little things that he points out and. Uh, the way that he makes it feel like such a deal, I, I do think he adds a lot to this match. Um, we get Trop Suey again now, uh, and Steamer misses a drop kick. Um, Flair um, goes for an inside cradle, um, but it's reversed. Oh no no, uh, Steamboat goes for an inside. Steamboat, yeah. Steamboat go goes for the inside cradle, but Flair reverses it for the first four. Um, so that's our first four. Flair's 1-0 up, and I'll pause here, Chad, for any comments on the first four. Yeah, I, I really, uh, I mean, the first probably 15 minutes sort of set the table, but we had some, still some great, uh, some great exchanges, uh, and, and one thing that I'm probably will repeat myself in analyzing this match, but one thing that really started to take over after, uh, Steamboat took a brilliant bump when Flair got the knees up on yeah. his splash. He he flipped completely over, and then Flair started working on the midsection. Uh, and then they do a pin sequence after the underhook suplex. And another great thing about this match is, is nothing is conceded by either no. wrestler. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the pin, each pin attempt, you can actually see uh, kind of the strain in the arms. Of both wrestlers and trying to hold the other one down for the pin attempt or trying to kick out. Uh, so and then and then the the finish I thought was was pretty good, uh, where kind of Steamboat goes for an inside cradle, but Flair kind of reverses it to get the upper advantage. Uh, I think that's smart from a strategy standpoint, and that you know Flair as the challenger now has a one fall up and. Funk again was masterful on commentary saying that now essentially Flair's wrestling as the champion because he has mm. a one ball advantage. Yeah, and um, the other thing I thought I'd mention is just the pace of the match. Um, you, now, you, most hour-long matches start off real slow, but the, the, I don't think it'd be fair to say that these guys are slow in any way during this first portion of the match. I mean, um, like, you know, we do get some hold sequences, but really the pace is ramped up right from the start. The intensity is certainly there right from the start, I would say. Yeah. 
Um, which is amazing, like, I mean, just from a fitness and fatigue point of view, it's amazing that they just start out at that kind of pace and keep it up the whole, well, where, as, as we'll see, um, they, they, they keep up this level of intensity for the whole match. Um, as we go into the second four, we get a back suplex by Flair and a knee drop. Um, and <laughs> this, this is something that, um, blows my mind every time I see it. Steamboat now does 16 elbow drops on Flair's leg. Um, 16 elbow drops is absolutely fucking mental. <laughs> any any thoughts on this uh, little spot here? It's, it's like... <laughs> this this uh, probably the opening five minutes uh, is one of... I mean, there's a couple of sequences in this match. This opening five minutes of the second fall is probably uh, one of my favorites because of the way Steamboat reacts. Uh, he knows he's behind now, so we get a lot more aggressive Ricky Steamboat than you're used to seeing. I mean, even in his quote-unquote blood feuds, mm. like the WrestleMania three match, he's not as aggressive versus Savage as he is right here in this sequence where he does, he just like relentlessly... Uh, keeps elbowing the leg, really shows kind of an out-of-control uh, steamboat where, you know, he has to do something to retain his title. So just just amazing stuff right here. He applies the figure four, um, which I also thought was a nice touch because it's, that's the first figure four we've seen, and it's from Steamboat, not from Flair. Um, but Flair makes it to the ropes. Then he gets the Boston Crab on, um, and Flair is in agony, and um, Ross is, starts talking about the plane crash around this point um, and Funk also I, I thought said he says around this point that uh, Steamboat needs to go back to that leg that he was working on which was really good from a psychology like Funk is just amazing uh, on commentary during this one match um, we get a backslide that gets two um, Flair bails he sends Steamboat into the railings um, but then he does a body slam railings again big suplex back in um, and he holds it up there for quite some time uh, that gets a two count he goes for an abdominal stretch which get, gets a series of uh, near falls um, Steamer hits a superplex now and Ross mentions the plane crash again here um, so Flair's back is in trouble he switched from the leg to the back um, and he gets on a double chicken wing and Flair submits um, for the second fall so I'll pause again, Chad, for your th th thoughts on this little sequence here. Yeah, we um from the Boston Crab uh, figure four sequence that was very well done. Um, this again led into a uh, kind of a sequence of exchanges and pinner counters. Once they go to the outside, Flair is still selling the leg uh, really well. Um, you know, that was not forgotten in this match. Uh, at the 30-minute mark, we get the call from Font that I talked about in the last show where he said it feels like they'd been out there for about five minutes, mm. which which I love that call. Um, and then once Flair suplexes him back in, I really enjoyed the, this sequence too because uh, it's very smart because Flair knows he has a one-fall advantage. So you get, you. I mean, even though he's, got the advantage right now, you do get a sense of desperation from him where he just goes for all these pinfalls, he goes for an abdominal stretch uh, 
you know, that works over, obviously, uh, Steamboat's weakened midsection. But uh, he really foregoes that quickly because he's just wanting to win the title. So he ends up cradling him. Uh, yeah. And then he gets a little more desperate by putting his foot on the ropes and yelling at someone uh, in the crowd. And Steamboat counters all of this uh, onslaught by going back to the weak leg. Uh, but of being Flair kind of dominated the most of the second fall, uh, but made a cardinal mistake. Steamboat was able to get the superplex, which greatly hurt uh, Flair's back. And then uh, he gets the chicken wing, and Flair has to give up, which you don't see Flair submit. Uh, I can't no. recall seeing him submit like that much. No, and he, I mean, he looked like he was in agony during that submission. And, and it looked like something was, um, it looked like he was upset. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was... Right. Um, it, do you remember when we talked about Magnum TA versus uh, uh, Tully Blanchard? where it was getting to more than just about wrestling. I think that's the the moment in this match where it becomes more than just about just about wrestling, if that makes any sense. Right. Um so uh it's one one now and as we start the third four we get a fl- flare flop. Um then he sneaks over and blocks uh blocks at Steamboat's knee. We get a big chop from Steamer, another f- flare flop here. Now we get a shin breaker from Flair, and he applies the figure four. Um, that gets a rope break. Uh, Flair f- focuses on the leg now. More chop suey. Uh, we get a series of near falls with um, Flair's feet on the ropes, which I thought was quite nice because we've seen him win so many times with his feet on the ropes in that position. And any one of them could have been the actual four, but none of them were. Um, 20 minutes are left. Uh, Flair works on the knee. Um, we get another figure four, and when he's in this figure four now, Flair is slapping at Steamer's face, and he really, really cranks on the leg um, with a kind of level of viciousness that I don't recall seeing. Um, Flair hits the crossbody from the top. Um, Steamer um, goes for a body slam, but his leg gives way, and that gets a two count. Um, we get a flying headbutt, a flying body press. Um, but then uh, Steamboat misses an elbow. We get a neck breaker. That gets a two count. Uh, then we get a sunset flip by Steamer. A sleeper hole by Flair. And they mention on commentary that you don't see Flair do a sleeper hole very often. Um, Flair goes back to the leg. Steamboat goes uh, to kick. Um, basically, Steamboat gets a kick uh, into Flair's head there. Uh, Flair just goes back to the leg again. And he's just relentless in this sequence he's not letting up at all um, and Steamboat's left leg is basically like a noodle or something at this point it's just kind of like I mean it's a tremendous sell job um, he comes back uh, Steamboat gives a roar at this point and he's starting to kind of do his equivalent of a hulk up or getting adrenaline or something um, we get a clothesline uh, and a back suplex from Flair he goes to the top, Steamboat catches him and throws him down, and then he goes back to the double arm chicken wing. Uh, his leg gives out, he falls back, and it's kind of ambivalent as to who's on top, but um, Steamboat retains, and that's it, one, two, three. Uh, he's still the world champion. Chad, is this the greatest match of all time? 
Um, <laughs> well, I mean, just the third fall on it. Um, we get, I mean, in a lot of two out of three falls matches I've seen, uh, the third fall has kind of been, I, I mean, I think in some ways with a two out of three falls match, you get to a law of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. Um, here, they were able to kind of amazingly take everything, uh, not only that you saw in the first two falls, but their past history together uh, was crafted into this third fall, which was really incredible. Um, I mean, you, you, you get a great sale of fatigue for it. Uh, when Flair finally goes after the leg, he, he slaps on the figure four the first time, uh, but Steamboat reaches the ropes immediately. They're right there next to the ropes. Uh, so so Steamboat immediately was able to neutralize one of Flair big moves. Uh, and then right after that, Steamboat tries to do his, uh, he does his Flair flip into the turnbuckle and goes running uh, to the top rope of the other turnbuckle. But Steamboat again cuts him off with a double chop on the apron. So you see like Steamboat being able to be one step ahead of Flair for kind of all his signature moves and all this stuff. But then Flair's finally able to take the, over the advantage. Uh, and then when he gets on the figure four the second time, you really feel a sense of danger. Yeah. Uh, because Flair has been able to, you know, counteract Steamboat. And uh, he finally has him in a compromising position. And this led from that to him hitting his crossbody. Uh, which was a great near fall. Steamboat came back and uh, hit a great uh, crossbody for another great near fall. Um, and and it's just a lot of great stuff was teased here. They do a kind of crisscross rope running sequence where, I don't know if you noticed this, but Tommy Young, who I'll give credit to in this match, uh, when they do that sequence, there's a couple of times where it's 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 really close to where they run into him mm. uh, that we've seen so many times before. So they tease like him getting bumped, uh, but he goes out of the way. There's another sequence where Flair, uh, you know, Steamboat's going for the flip uh, pinfall, and Flair's right next to the ropes, which we've seen so many times before. Him kind of grab the ropes. Uh, to gain the pinfall, but he he just can't reach there. And Tommy Young actually at one point looks up to make sure Flair's not grabbing the ropes. Uh, so there's so much teased and built upon in this uh, in this third fall, and then the final uh, few minutes they're really just both spent. Yeah. Uh, really, after the sleeper, it kind of. I mean, I mean, to me, it looks like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Thriller in Manila fight between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, Yeah. Uh, but, but sort of that's the facial expressions you got here with just a, a glazed look Yeah. Uh, both individuals had. Um, and then the, the finish comes into play with what we've seen before where Flair gets caught coming off the rope for the first time. Uh, this is the first time he got thrown off the top rope. Uh, you know, Steamboat immediately locks on the double arm chicken wing. His leg collapses, kind of a la Lex Luger in Starcade '88, uh, and we get a kind of ambivalent finish, like you said, which you know leaves open a lot of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm 
just uh, it's not much. I mean, there's a lot you can say, and not you know at the same time, there's not a lot you really can say. I think it's just. I, I mean, as I watched this match last night, I really wanted to come to grips of whether I thought it was the greatest match of all time. Well, and while go you're, ahead. While you're thinking on that, Chad, um, I, wa- I want to put this out there. It, it's something I said on the PWO board a, a few weeks back, and various people have said whether they agree or, or disagree with it. Um, I'm just going to read it verbatim here, and I want you to think about this with this mm-hmm. match in mind to see if you think that this is true, okay? Um, so we were kind of going back and forth and this is part of the big Bret Hart versus Ric Flair thread which is is a really good read uh, even if you're not part of that forum for some really in-depth analysis of both of those guys Um, but we got to this point where people were saying that basically one of the problems with Flair is that he's always booked weak like he's basically a chicken shit pussy and my response to that I said well Flair's real character isn't a chicken shit though He's not like a honky-tonk man or a lawler in 93. He often plays a chicken shit to lull the opponent into a false sense of security. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. He's buying time and looking for an opportunity. And I thought that's something that Funk really brought across in that first fall here. Um, Flair's true character is not a chicken shit, but a desperate borderline psycho who will do anything, anything, to keep hold of that title, or in this case to win it. There is also a third layer, which is the cocky, arrogant, strutting heel, which is obviously a front, and a fourth layer, which is the true blue athlete who will never say die, and that's even there when he's a heel. There's shades of it, for example, in Royal Rumble 92. Flair switches between these four personalities a lot, but they are always swirling about. Two of them, the cocky, arrogant, slick Rick character, and the chicken shit are an act, and the other two, the borderline psycho and the true blue athlete, only surface under extreme pressure. So, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I really liked that thesis. Um, I, I, I know you were commended for that, and I thought that was a lot of forethought and uh, accurate. I mean, in this match, I don't think... Uh, I mean, I think we saw um, probably the slick, rick, cocky person hmm. probably the least. Yeah. Uh, but but even especially in that final fall, I think if you do base Flair on that thesis, I think the final fall is really telling because I think you do see mostly the the second personality of the psycho and the uh, the true blue uh, athlete. Yeah. Which which you know as you've hypothesized are his true personalities really coming out in that final mm. uh, final ten minutes. Yeah, and, and I, there was a moment where I thought like Flair is just relentless. Um, went in his attack during there's a sequence there where it's like Steamboat actually begs off. <laughs> Did you notice that? Uh, yeah. I mean. It's- <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a. I mean, you don't see baby faces beg off very often, but even he had to do it because he was so, um, you know, he was coming with such intensity and relentlessness. So, um, yeah, I mean, a great performance from him, and uh, it's very difficult to pick a performance between these two. But Steamboat selling of the leg in this match is, you know, tremendous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we get uh we get a lot of glimpses, you know, we get a, 
I mean, Steamboat shows a few things that we don't see from him much. Like I said, the intensity and aggression. Uh, but then we show some of the things he's like renowned for his selling, uh, and his selling job here. The leg was masterful too. Um, I don't know. Is this probably? Do you think this is the greatest match you've ever seen? I'll, I'll give you two contenders after you discuss it. It's mm, um, well, I mean, there are a couple of things that there are a couple of things that hurt this match, which is going to sound strange. One of them is something that is not in Steamboat or Flair's control, and that is the fact that they are just doing this in front of 4,000 people in a largely empty, empty stadium. Um, it doesn't have the heat of the Chi- uh, Triton Rumble match. It doesn't have the. Um, it's an inc- you know it's an incredible match, but it doesn't have that really hot crowd there. Um, you know the crowd is hot, but it doesn't. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like it... It wasn't as hard as Chi-Town. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that uh, hurts it a little bit. Um, but I'm trying to think of what other matches I'd put in there. I mean, I really like uh, Jumbo uh, Tenryo from 89. Yeah. Uh, that match has got all sorts of things going on there. Um, it, it's about more than just wrestling. It's about to... Val, you know, philosophies and values of life, just like this match. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to. I don't know that this one feels like a very strong contender. If it's not yeah. the best match ever, what are you going to put in there? I, w- I would say, uh, I mean, to me, um, I always had this one kind of swirling around um, as my top list. After after this, um, I've always thought since I watched. Uh, the 6 9 1995 uh, All Japan tag between Masawa and Kabashi versus Kawada and Taue. I, I always had thought that was the best match I ever saw um, mm-hmm. until, I mean, this was like 2002 when I first watched it the first time. And that match is still held. Uh, I, I mean, I still would place that match ahead of this one. Um, I, I watched that match. Uh, every Christmas Day, um, as is kind of like my, just because it's my favorite match, kind of hokey, but uh, I, I just love it. Uh, the only other contender right off the bat, and I'll, I'll freely admit that I've, I've seen a lot of great lucha matches, uh, and, including my 1990 match of the year. More than likely, will be uh, Angel Azteca versus El Dandy, but a, a lucha match has yet to kind of grab me emotionally. Like uh, this match and the Japanese matches seem to do. Uh, so the only other match I'd put in contention would be uh, Masawa and Kawada from six three ninety four, which is kind of the stock uh, stock uh, answer for one yeah. of the best matches of all time. Um, and and I did watch that probably about six months ago, so fairly recently, and it it held up and is absolutely incredible as well. Uh, but th- but that this is I mean this is a brilliant match and at this point I think I'm more tolerable than some people um, on the internet as far as watching a 55 minute match I mean it's yeah. not my favorite match but I I can tolerate it you know um, if I if I watch a long match as long as it's worth it and this match is definitely definitely worth it so going back to 
last week when we were talking about what's your pick of the trilogy. I mean, are you going going for this one? I because yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the Shutdown Rumble match is a great uh, match of the year candidate type match. Mm. You know, great match. This match, I think you can put up against any of the all-time classics and I will argue uh, I will argue for this match just because I think there's so many layers you have different personalities uh, mm-hmm. between each of the uh, individuals that develop between the 55 minutes uh, but each each came out organically it wasn't like Steamboat just became this kind of crazy you know aggressive person he was down one fall Mm-hmm. He'd worked, you know, 15 plus years to win the world title and, you know, got put one over by Flair again in the first fall with this quick inside cradle. So he knew, you know, he was either a time limit away or another fall away from losing, you know, what he just worked 15 years for uh, to only have for a month. So so everything came about real organically. The match had a ton of different themes uh, where you get Flair kind of begging off Golden Steamboat, you get Flair, uh, his his main moves being neutralized. They really made Flair's signature moves like his crossbody off the top, his figure four, uh, Steamboat's crossbody. They made those moves count. When they hit those, you felt it was over. It, I I also thought the presentation. You know, you've got all of these old world NWA champions. Um, sitting in the crowd in a row, watching watching them. You've got Funk on commentary and Jim Ross, you know, also on top form here. So it, it kind of like, I mean, it's possible. I mean, Meltzer says in his notes that there was more magic to the Chicago show, but I mean, this also in its own way is kind of magic as well. If you if you know what I mean, like the oh, yeah. the fact there's that sense of history there and um, like. It, it's almost like it was custom made to be a match for the ages without being the, uh, what does LP call it, the self-conscious epic that um, people try to have now. So, um, I did want to mention Meltzer's take on this here, um, just just real quick. Um, he uh, He has this interesting thought here that this was an old style match with lots of time, drama, working holes, perfectly timed spots, etc. Actually, in truth, it was better than the best matches in that style as well. Both guys did more actual wrestling than you would normally see today. But really, these guys have taken today's style and yesterday's style and combined it to take this stuff to a new level. So I thought that was quite an interesting little... Um, little idea there that it's a meeting of old, old and new. I don't know if you want had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you did have uh, sort of a standard old school tradition structure wise, but uh, the moves and intensity were, I think, kind of revolutionary uh, at this point. One one thing too that Meltzer mentions that's real clever is uh, they they did not they did tease when I was talking about the teases they did in the third fall. Another thing you could say they teased was the sixty minute draw. Yeah, that's uh, true. You know, you you mm-hmm. did have you know a finish in this match when it, it if you were watching this live you would have thought it probably would have went to a uh, a sixty minute draw with one fall apiece. So that I mean that that again that's another one more 
positive for this match to chalk it up as. Yeah, and I mean, um, the, the the finish as well is clever because it gives them a way to have another rematch. Because obviously if Steamboat beats Flair clean t- two matches in a row, um, he's going to get... And th- th- let me just go to the uh, little promo that he has with Jim Ross now. He's obviously covered in sweat and he's got the NWA title there. Um, and he says that uh, as great as Flair has been, it's time to move on. He has to consider other contenders. So he's already moving on, like that's Steamboat's kind of polite way of saying, you know, especially what Flair said to Luger, you know, you've used up your lives now, you're not getting any more shots type thing. Um, but then they watch the replay kind of live there. Um, and Ro- Ross basically hears in his earpiece that Flair's irate. Um, and there will be an uh, inquiry in, into the... into what had happened and Steamboat says there and then that there is grounds for complaint and that Flair has a legitimate reason to be upset so he's still a good sportsman and he says that it's basically opening the door for another rematch in a logical way I thought it was pretty good booking there from uh, old George Scott on his way out yeah um okay well uh, what do you think of Clash 6 as a show I like the show a lot overall. I think it kind of continued the trend we're starting to see where uh, in Clash 1, Clash 4, Clash 6 kind of <laughs> seems like sort of every other show almost the clashes. Um, I, don't, I don't know quite <laughs> why that is, but uh, th- I thought this was one of the stronger clashes we've seen, certainly top three. So uh, it, and in good company. It's almost ridiculous to ask you, but what's your match of the night? <laughs> yeah, that would be Flair Steamboat. Um, I mean, kind of not much more you can say. So No, and, and also, obviously, there's no other way you can go. More interesting question is MVP. Yeah, this I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go with Flair. Um, and that's that's really tough not to go with Steamboat, but kind of in the totally magnum, match you sort of had to pick somebody uh, I hear I'm picking player uh, I mean Steamboat probably did one of the best performances of his career after watching this match last night I have to think about it but I may argue this is in my opinion the best performances of Flair's career hmm. or one of them uh, so he is going to be my MVP I think I'm going to go with Steamboat yeah and I think it's because it's a few things that clinch it for him. Um, but three things in particular. One is that his chops were insane in this match. Like, yes. he took them next level, even from uh, Triton Rumble. Like, they were just nuts. Um, secondly is that spot where he does 16 elbow drops in a row, just for sheer insanity. I Like, um, just to think to do that, you know, that was really good from him. Um, and the third thing is the selling of the leg, um, which I thought was, um, you know, one of the best sell jobs of a leg ever. And oh, and the other thing is that on in this promo he does mention that he developed the um, the chicken wing specifically for this match. He developed a game plan that he was going to use this chicken wing, um, and I thought that was very clever from a psychology viewpoint. He knew. Flair had a weak back, he worked on the back, and he went to it twice. So from a structure point of view, all of that makes perfect sense. So 
I'm. I mean, that's not to take anything away from Flair's performance. Right. Um, I just like on balance, I think Steamboat had an, as many interest. I let me put it a different way. I think there are other Flair matches that you can point to. Um, whereas I'm not sure if Steamboat has another performance as great as this in his career. This is uh, this I think is Steamboat's career match. Um, and I think with Flair, there may be some some other. Like, there may be one or two other matches that you could point to where he's he's this good again. Right. So so very close margin, but I'll go with Steamboat to balance things up. Almost seems a shame to do it, but Billy Graham Award. <laughs> go from that to uh, <laughs> my Billy Graham winner. I, I actually had a kind of trouble picking one for this show, but I'm going to pick Ranger Ross. Um, <laughs> I mean, we only saw a minute and a half of it, but he was able to botch that terrible kick, so uh, that was pretty much for him to win it for me. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to go with junk food. I thought yeah. he, I thought he was hopeless in that match, and... He didn't have to do a lot. Butchery was almost making it easy for him, and um, I, I don't know. It was just a shame to see. Like, I don't understand how he can be that inept. Like, I know he's fat and stuff, but he doesn't have to just be. I don't know. There's a lot of problems with uh, JYD at this point in his career, and I can't right. believe it's not the last we see of him. There's more. <laughs> there's more JYD coming up. So, um, okay. Well, um, hold on. So Chad, should we do some uh, some comments then? We we did make a promise that on these class shows we do some comments. I've just got a couple from the from the main board here, um, okay. from the from the web page. Um, you know, occasionally they filter through. There's a lot of I get a lot of spam, so it's difficult to pick out the actual comments sometimes. Um, there's a guy called Eddie. Uh, who who we've not heard from before, who says he was listening to the Great American Bash '88 podcast. And he wanted to let us in on some information. He said typically in a heel face match, the heel will call the match. The face, uh, if not kept in check, can make himself look like a Superman. So the face will only look as good as the heels want him to look. And in the Arn Tully vs. Sting Nikita match, Arn and Tully were not happy with Dusty or the company at that time, so they purposely called the match in a way to look Sting and to make Sting and Nikita look bad. A veteran team could have worked uh, uh, that in a way that would have not looked so bad, but Arn and Tully. Uh, wouldn't have tried that on a veteran team. So uh, he says Sting and Nikita was still green at that time, um, so there was nothing they could do. Granted, you will never get a Funk Briscoe match from a match involving Sting or Nikita, but Arn and Tully could have worked that match a little better. Dusty was high on both those guys, and Arn and Tully wanted to make Dusty look bad. So uh, a little bit of specifics back on the Great American Bash 88. Um, interesting, uh, I guess, because... I was probably really down on Nikita in that match. <laughs> um, and he's saying that it was basically on Tully's fault. So I don't know if you have any comment to add there, Chad. Just to, just the next comment. <laughs> uh, next comment is from Mick Murphy. Um, he says, Hi guys, I'm halfway through the Chitown Rumble podcast. Parv, I really enjoy the research you put into these. And the info analysis provided... Uh, when going off to, on topics like Atlanta Greensboro and the best uh, midnight combo um, stuff is fascinating, especially like the way you uh, guys get every uh, guest's history as well as a wrestling fan. So keep up the good work. So that was uh, 
just a nice little post there from Mick Murphy. So if you want to leave a comment on the main site, um, you know, feel free to leave a reply. But I would say that the uh, the best place to leave a <laughs> uh, message would be on the PWO board. I think Chad, you've got some comments from there. Yeah, uh, on the on our Shytown Rumble show, uh, we make a separate post for each um, each show. It's in the publications and podcasts subforum on PWO. Uh, so I, I uh, after the Shytown Rumble show, I asked both uh, Lost and Shu, who have been commenters on uh, a lot of our previous shows, what their thoughts were on the uh, pay-per-view as a whole. Lost says that his memory was that the main event was worth the price of admission, and Luger Wyndham, the Midnight Express match, and the Road Warriors versus Walsh D Club match were all fun at the very least. Luger Wyndham was a match in particular that probably would have been great with 10 more minutes. They had a lot of ideas that were cramming into a 10 minute match that didn't have time to play out. Luger was very motivated to put on a good performance and try new things. Uh, and that Luger Wyndham match is kind of been a source of a lot of discussion going on the past couple of days. Yeah, and I mean, D D Dylan uh, Dwaku, who, who I don't know, uh, if he, he said he's listened to a few of these shows, but he's a big uh, figure there on the ProWrestlingOnly.com boards. I mean, he, he made the statement that he thinks that the Luger Winder match is better than any match in Ted DiBiase's WWF career, which is quite a wild statement, I think. Um, and uh, well, I think we both disagree with that, don't we? Um, there are people who are a lot higher on that Luger-Windham match than I think either of us are, it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I like the match, uh, but I wouldn't say that. Um, and then Law says he's listening to the show now. Um, at this point, he didn't believe it was known Windham was on his way out. Within the month, it was clear he was leaving, so they bumped Michael Hayes up to take his spot. I'm pretty sure there was talk of Flair and Windham feuding after Flair turned face. I think the idea was even tossed around of Wyndham beating Steamboat to take the title, followed by a babyface Flair chasing Wyndham. Um, and then uh, and then Shu sort of chimes in and just says that he agrees with Laws pretty much uh, about the show as a whole. Chi-Town Rumble, the main event was tremendous. Midnight Express, Six Man was a ton of fun. Uh, Wyndham and Luger was pretty good that deserved more time. So I do think... Uh, based on these comments that Shu and Laws kind of align more with our opinion on Wendell and Luger, uh, more than maybe uh, Will and Dylan mm. on that match. Uh, he hasn't seen the Roadies match in a while, but thought it was solid. Uh, and then I think we also got a uh, comment from Brain Follower. Uh, finished the whole podcast today. I sort of agree with George Scott Parr. But I would put it as two steps forward and two steps back. I guess the clean finishes mean that much to me. Although, really, how much more clean is the shoulder lift finish, I guess. Uh, yeah, and well, we've seen the last of uh, George Scott now. Um, okay, well, great. And uh, it, if you want to, I mean, we, we've said this, and I know it's not uh, straightforward to join uh, ProWrestlingOnly.com, but... Um, to uh, do try to make an effort if you're interested because it's not just uh, comments on our show. You, I, I mean, if you like the kind of in-depth analysis we do on this show, I think uh, you get that and then some on on those boards. Um, so, anything else you wanted to mention, Chad? Yeah, I mean, just a couple of things on that 
ProWrestlingOnly.com, they've uh, they've added a sub forum called the Microscope, which which I it, it's, it's, I will say it's making me a lot less productive at work. <laughs> I mean, because you can you can go in there and basically it's just making a case for a wrestler um, and the analyzing that's going back in there. Uh, is really impressive. I've started a thread on the Rockers uh, that I have been reviewing a few matches here and there. I should have a review of their match versus uh, Demolition from uh, late 1988 by the time anybody listens to this. Uh, So I've started doing that, kind of analyzing them as how good of a WWF tag team they were. Uh, But there's just a ton of threads in there on people like uh, Buddy Rose, John Tenta, Nick Bockwinkle, Ken Patera, Regal, Hanson, you name it. And then the Bret Hart versus Ric Flair thread is is, uh, really incredible. Also, uh, Wrestling Culture did a podcast uh, about a week and a half ago, um, which was sort of a roundtable discussion on Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, and Ric Flair. Uh, if you haven't seen that, um, check it out. That was a great podcast. And then uh, Place to Be did a interview with J.J. Dillon, their second mm. interview with him on uh, Thursday night. And that was a really good interview, too. J.J. really goes in-depth. You get a lot of kind of business, behind-the-scenes type stuff of when he was in the WWF. Uh, kind of as Vince's right-hand man during the steroid trial. Uh, so how he, I mean, he wrote, he said he wrote WrestleMania 8 with Vince himself. So I thought that was, that's just kind of an, a quick nugget of what that interview was about. Really in-depth and mm. uh, really interesting. I love the business, kind of behind-the-scenes type stuff. And finally, on the uh, Place to Be message board at Bigelow34.ProBoards.com, I and me and Justin are heading a, uh, a tournament for the uh, best uncrowned tag team champions um, <laughs> that never won WWL for uh, WCW tag team gold. Uh, we're in the second round right now. Uh, the brackets are the Rockers versus the Powers of Pain, who pulled off a stunning upset in my mind over the, uh, over the Fantastics. So it's the Rockers versus the Powers of Pain, the Killer Bees versus Power and Glory, uh, the Rougeos versus the Twin Towers and the Faces of Fear versus the Can-Am Connection. So go vote in that. Uh, leave comments on that. Uh, so that's just some stuff. A, lot, a lot's been going on. Uh, I will say this has kind of been one of those weeks where uh, to be on the, uh, on the internet message boards that I've been in, it has been just a whirlwind but amazing. Um, <laughs> no, I mean us reviewing this show and being able to review a match like Steamboat and Flair, I'd really look forward to uh, the discussion on both of the message boards I frequent the most have been really great the past week or so. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of great stuff to listen to at work. So this, this really in the past two weeks has been, uh, I've also watched a lot of great stuff in the 1990 yearbook. So these past two weeks have been uh, just amazing to be a wrestling fan. Just two things I'll mention is that, um, one, it's unbelievable that Powers of Pain beat the Fantastics. I mean, all of you voters here who listen 
to, to the show, you need to take a long, hard look at yourselves. Um, <laughs> and, and the second thing is that, um, I mean, January 2013 may go down as the, uh, as the best ever month for wrestling podcasts, because between that wrestling culture roundtable, where they go, Flair, Lawler, Funk, um, and the J.J. Dillon interview, I think, I mean, you know, really, really high quality stuff. Um, and, uh, I mean, they're basically dream shows for me. I mean, if I could custom make something I want to listen to, it would be those two, those two shows right there. So, uh, next time we're looking at Wrestle War and, uh, well, can't wait to get to it, Chad. Me either. Uh, We'll finish off the trilogy. (laughs) See you next week. All right. See ya. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts, and the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.